Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. I hope everyone is staying safe during this time. This month, we've got a great episode with the one and only Dr. Lisa Tatesman. Dr. Tatesman is a professor of orthopedics and sports medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Tatesman has thrived in the field of orthopedic trauma and recently had the honor of being named director-elect of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. Those individuals who are elected to the ABOS are an esteemed group of surgeons. It was such an honor and pleasure to speak with Dr. Tatesman, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Lisa Tatesman. Dr. Lisa Tatesman, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I am so excited to speak with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I was hoping that you can describe kind of your life story to our listeners, where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post-fellowship years. Sure. Um, I uh, will even start before medical school. I, I grew up in New Jersey. I'm an East Coast uh, uh, girl, probably to the core, even though I've somehow ended up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I went to both college and medical school at Brown University. I was really lucky. They have a a program where it was a combined eight-year program, which really gave me the opportunity to even merge medical school and college a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think, as I look back on it, is a little bit about who I am. Uh, I had the chance to take literature classes while in medical school and pathophysiology while as an undergrad, and uh, it was a really wonderful opportunity. I was a health and society major. I continued on to get my MD degree from Brown. And then I spent a year in Boston uh, doing a master's in public health. Um, after that, I began my surgical training. I was in the Harvard uh, Combined Orthopedics Program. So I did my internship at Beth Israel when it was still just the Beth Israel Hospital uh, in Boston. And then our program at that point was five and a half or six years. Um, so I, I did my chief residency there at Mass General, and then I went on to do a trauma fellowship. I ended up at, uh, Harborview Medical Center. Um, probably shouldn't admit it. It was not my first choice. I was an East Coast person and wanted to go to shock trauma and, uh, to age myself, there was no match in those days. And, um, I kind of joke with the guys at shock who have become my friends and I'm still waiting to hear if I've gotten my fellowship or not yet, because I still don't know. It's never really been answered. Um, but I ended up making uh, the biggest, uh, uh, boldest uh, non-planned decision of my life and coming out to the, what I used to call it, the wrong coast at that time and coming out to no. the Pacific Northwest and going to spend a year at Harborview, which was probably the uh, one of the hardest but greatest years of my life. Um, I had to contract to go back to where I was a resident, back to Boston. And due to a bunch of circumstances, I, uh, mostly political there, things were kind of a, a little bit uh, shaken up in the orthopedics department with changes of leadership. And I mm-hmm. uh, decided to stay on. They offered me to stay on an extra year at Harborview. Um, and then somehow my, but I keep saying three years is really probably more something like uh, 18 as I was a fellow in 2001, 2002. So that's my my planned and unplanned uh, course to where I have, uh, where I've gotten. Oh do you still believe the West Coast is the wrong coast? No, it's not the wrong coast, but it's not the East Coast. Um, it's uh, it's taken me a long time. I don't totally blend, but the people that have gotten to know me appreciate my my direct attitude, and that I don't uh, I don't always blend with some of the passive aggressive uh, attitudes that are here. But <laughs> it's actually a beautiful place to live. Um, where I work, and we could talk about that more later, is just a is just a very unique and very special place. And um, you know, I'm at a regional trauma center that covers five states, and I don't think you have that opportunity anywhere else wow. in the country. So there True. are just some amazing people, amazing talent, um, a beautiful part of the country. It's a secret. I never had been out here, and the summers are just um, absolutely perfect. So uh, oh, it is not awesome. the wrong coast, um, but it's okay. it's the opposite side for my family. So. <laughs> 
I hear you. I would love to hear kind of your the beginning of your story for orthopedic surgery and when you knew you first wanted to do orthopedic surgery. So I went to medical school having no idea what I was going to do. I think, though, just to to uh, go with my background, my, my father is an orthopedic surgeon, um, mm-hmm. and I am very close to my father, and I'm sort of a, a kind of the spitting image of my dad. Things we've learned <laughs> later on in life is like we doodle the same way. We have all the same mannerisms. Things we like are very oh, similar. Awesome. My parents right. are both very supportive, but they actually never pushed me uh, one way or another. In fact, my dad mm-hmm. said, try everything. Try urology, uh, try mm-hmm. anesthesia. So I fought it. I fought that. Um, that, uh, you know, I got to do my own thing. I can't just mirror him. So I think there was some of that in my background. And then probably like a lot of other people going into orthopedics, I had my fair share of injuries. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can list them. I'm a textbook. You know, I had my uh, electron fracture from gymnastics as a kid and my spondy uh-huh. that I eventually got and my skiing injuries and five knee surgeries, and, you know, all these kind of things. And I don't have the Gore-Tex ACL that they had requested. So I was very comfortable with it. I knew a lot about all parts of the orthopedic exam. But again, I still mm-hmm. fought it all the way through medical school. I um, I thought I was actually going to be an adolescent health doctor. That's what I really, that was my my thing. I spent the first years of medical school going to the teen prison uh, three afternoons a week and doing all kinds of education. And then it became right. clear that whole procedural thing versus um versus non-procedural. And then I tried every subspecialty. And it was really at the end of my third year that I said, okay, this is what it is. This is where I'm most comfortable. And mm-hmm. um, it, I just, I like, I like what orthopedics is. I like being able to fix these problems. So on one hand, it seems like I was always set to do it from early childhood. And on the other, it, it was truly almost, I probably was the last one in my class to come to the decision of what to do. So mm-hmm. um Maybe that's just who I am. I try and fight the expected and, uh, but end up there anyways. So. <laughs> that's awesome. What, and then after you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery, what inspired you to become an expert in orthopedic trauma surgery? It was, uh, it, uh, it was probably all the same thing. Uh, it was mul- it, 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 in the sense of, uh, everybody told me, um, I was going to do hand repeats. I think there are and were, and especially then, um, gender issues, and there was just assumptions, and that mm-hmm. uh, you couldn't do trauma. Nobody did trauma. There weren't that many fellowships. Um, right. Where I was, it was what they did between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m., and it's what the chief residents did, and it was not as respected until we had, in my end of my residency, we had trauma faculty show up, and um I'd say Dr. Mark Varis was very influential and in that he really, with him and his group, started a system. And so mm-hmm. then there became trauma rooms. And then there became a way to do this, that you weren't just um, doing this in the middle of the night outside of an elective schedule. And it really was a, a specialty that was valued. I thought I was going to do hand. I loved the microscope. I thought I was going right. to do sports. Six out of the 10 of us went into sports. And you're too young for this, but like the bad Brady Bunch episode, I didn't feel like I would look the part in the proper suit and uniform, you know, that a lot of these sports programs do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then it was just this balance of me being kind of insecure and wanting to be able to focus on something. In fact, I, I thought I would do that knee fellowship because I could learn about the knee. There's a fellowship in New York where you, you just can learn about mm-hmm. the knee and I could become a master of one thing. And then all of a sudden it was balancing that with the uh, idea of... Uh, dealing with lots of parts of the body and multiple age patients and patients mm-hmm. that I could hopefully get back to where they were and get better. So mm-hmm. I went through the whole gamut of picking, especially in our program was six years. So I even had that extra year. The other thing for me was complications. I know that sounds crazy, but um, I was trying to figure out, I knew there would be complications with patients and how was I going to deal with that best? And Things like if I decided to offer uh, like a knee scope to an 18 year old and they happened to be the one who had their fatal PE, would I ever be able to continue? And with trauma, it seemed like um, uh, the indications and the the need for surgery just um, I don't know were even were even more more clear or sat with me. And I know that seems a little bit crazy, and we have plenty of complications, no. and they still make me lose lots of sleep. But at at the time that I was making the decision, those were the things that were going through my mind. And basically everybody told me I couldn't do it. And one of the attendings at my program said, you're going into trauma. He said, why would you want to take care of the wrong kind of people at the wrong time of the day? And 
that was enough for me. Then I was done. I was sold. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Can you humble brag for a moment and speak about some of your most proud accomplishments that you've had within the field of orthopedic traumatology? Um, gosh, you know, there've been lots of little events. I just think being here and doing it and having the privilege of working where I work at what mm -hmm. I consider one of the um, great trauma centers in the United States. Uh, right. It is really to me the, the ultimate thing that I can say. It's just been a privilege to take care of patients and to train mm -hmm. so many, to be involved in the training of so many residents and fellows. Um, and like many of us, or I, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's, it hasn't always been the easiest path. There were so many people along the way who just said, you're never going to make it and you can't do it and right. you're useless and right. you have no business going into it. That just sort of being on the other side of the table and having the privilege and the opportunity to do my job where I do it and with the people I do it, mm -hmm. um, to me is probably the biggest accomplishment for me. Oh, that's awesome. I know that you had mentioned earlier that you earned your master's of public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. And I was wondering if you could talk about your inspiration for pursuing a master's of public health. Sure. It, it was something that I was uh, always interested in. I started it actually at the end of medical school, but trying to drive back and forth an hour from Boston to Providence proved to be challenging. Um, I just really liked multiple parts of it from I, I thought I would want to even have more of an administrative role and, and know about that kind of stuff um, mm -hmm. to the to the uh, fundamentals that we probably in those days certainly didn't learn enough about epidemiology and biostatistics in medical school. So that provided me with a background um, for which moving forward to this day, I feel more equipped to read the literature and to mm -hmm. help with studies and, and do research projects. And so it really gave me that background. Um, and even as I said, for my undergrad, I was a health and society major, or I think I said that. Um, and uh, so for me, that marriage of, of, of medicine and the other, the clinical parts and the other parts um, were something I just wanted to learn more about and get more involved with. And it was a really mm -hmm. wonderful year with amazing people. Nice. How has your education that you had gained during your year earning your MPH, how has that influenced your clinical practice today? Well, I think it's helped me with the, with the parts that I uh, was talking about in terms of the uh, biostatistics and epidemiology and understanding studies and thinking about populations. Mm -hmm. um, I think I had planned on doing a lot more research in sort of public health and public health domains and hopefully um, moving forward as other things have come to a close. That's where I, I would like to explore more and re-engage mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Um, I think it also helps some of the courses there without getting into the depths of the coursework also helped me think of patients as people. And I think some of right. that was just re reinforced uh, during that time and um, remembering that there's the individual patient and there's the humanity of a person as well as there's the societal issues. And I think as orthopedic surgeons, sometimes we we know that we touch them and some of us are better at um, addressing them um, and remembering to address them because it's hard with all we have on our plates. But I think that uh, right. looking at that, there's so many ways within orthopedics that, that, that we're involved from things like, you know, um, uh, violence issues and fireworks and motorcycles and all, all these things where we have an opportunity to do more than just look at the broken bone or the injured mm -hmm. extremity. Mm. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I would love to, first of all, congratulate you in the sense that last October, it was announced that you are now a director elect of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. So first of all, congratulations on this amazing accomplishment. And I was hoping you can speak about what your thoughts were when you first heard that you would be a director elect of the ABOS. Sure. Um, uh, boy, I was really excited and humbled and a little bit of disbelief. It was something that um, was on my um, on my mind as something that was aspirational and kind of the would be the pinnacle of my academic career. Uh, but I didn't quite think that I was ready for it at that point in time. I had no, my name had been put up um, a couple of times. Uh, right. So I was just, just, thrilled and honored to get that uh, phone call, excited, 
humbled, nervous. You, you see the names of some of the people that have been there uh, and right. some of the people that are there. And I just have the utmost respect um, and want to make sure I can live up to expectations and, and use this as an opportunity as it's a, a 10 year um, commitment. Uh, right. that I think can is I'm I'm excited about uh, something that will be very meaningful for me and hope I can contribute to in a very positive way. Nice. What are what do you hope that the ABOS accomplishes over the course of your tenure? Sure. Um, it, it's uh, I can say what I think at this point is I'm really spending my first year getting familiar uh, with mm-hmm. the group and with the goals. Um, and I've learned a tremendous amount, even just in this first six months. I right. think what I didn't realize as much going into this is the true role of the ABOS as we have a mission to protect the public and um, make sure that orthopedic surgeons are just meeting a basic bar from mm-hmm competency to professionalism and ethics and all those things. And I've always felt strongly that we do have a role to police ourselves. It's not saying that we're trying to take out 20% of orthopedic surgeons, but we just really need to make sure that we are living up to our responsibilities um, to the public, to each other. And I have become very impressed at the strategies that the ABOS has taken to do this. I think mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of thought and time and effort and money that goes into trying to do this. Now I say that, and I want to help keep promoting this and doing my part in the background of the work. But I, I'm concerned that we need to get the message out about what ABOS really is, right? As a mm-hmm. resident, as somebody in practice, and think about it as something that's just a burden. I have these hurdles to jump through. They're trying to torture me with this test that's written right. and that's oral and I got to go to Chicago and I got to spend this money and I got to pay all this stuff. And, and it's just this burdensome thing where, um, over what we do as doctors, surgeons over a time period, it's really not a huge amount of time. And it's just only asking us to, to demonstrate a a baseline of, uh, you know, competency and engagement and Mm -hmm. professionalism. And I think if we could get the message out a little bit better, about really right. what the role of the ABOS is. And it's really here to help the 99.8% of us and um, uh, show our patients that we are thoughtful and 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 make ourselves be a little bit thoughtful. Um, that I, I think if we get the public relations message out there, it might really um, be of some benefit. So trying to pass that mm-hmm. message on, I think will be important to me, especially the more I understand and the more I see the tremendous amount of work and effort that goes behind doing this in a way that is um, good for orthopedic surgeons and also uh, good for, for the mission of uh, protecting the public. So I hope we can un- help people understand that uh, that is the goal and, 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 and minimize this thought of being just this burden kind of money grab. The, mm-hmm. the other thing that I really like the work that's going on is there's been a, a big shift or not a big shift, but uh, much increased attention to GME, to graduate medical education. It used right. to be really that the RRC, the ACGME, the Residency Review Committee is resident education and the ABOS is people out in practice, um, right? The RRC right. credits programs and the ABOS certifies individuals. And there's been a little bit of a very sharp line, even though behind the scenes there has been some marriage of that, but there's been a a lot of work in the last few years, especially um, regarding graduate medical education. And I uh, hope to to have a role being more involved in that work as I'm Mm -hmm. I'm learning more about it. Um, And there's a real focus on assessment and assessment that is greater than just medical knowledge regurgitation and some Mm -hmm. basic technical skills. And going back to even where I started with kind of my background is really appreciating the humanity in medicine and why we need to focus on people's behavior and communication and ethics and professionalism. And if you just try and start assessing that when somebody's 10 years in practice with some of these peer review things, 
Right. We've missed the boat and we've missed our opportunity mm -hmm. to um, to assess, to educate, uh, to help form um, trainees, medical students, residents into what aspirational type of orthopedic surgeons. So I've seen a push with projects focused on that, um, which mm -hmm. it's my understanding that in the past the board didn't look and work, do as much work in those areas. So I really think that that is a... Um, a huge opportunity and, and the projects that I would like to see myself involved in moving forward. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know that you've spoken about residency education and I would like to just jump into that topic. Um, and first of all, share my bias in that I think kind of just nationally residency education at this time is imperfect in the sense that there, of course, residency in it of itself, there is service tied to it. Like, yes, you're training to be a surgeon, but I also think that there's a lot of service that we as residents do, and it's important for us to learn, but I also think that it service, too much service, certainly can detract from education. And I think that a lot of the more senior orthopedic surgeons kind of say that us younger surgeons are, we're millennials and we're complaining too much because, you know, we didn't train in the days where they were working 120 hours a week and all these sorts of things. But I think that we are, in my generation, we are the ones that have $150,000 in debt. We're the ones that are having to deal with EMR. Um, we're the ones that are doing sub-eyes and, you know, having to pay thousands of dollars for residency interviews, residency applications. And so I think that the, you know, the, the adversities that we face are just different than what was faced before. And so I was wondering what your current thoughts are on the state of residency today and kind of what your dream slash ideal residency program would look like. I know that's a loaded question, but. <laughs> it is a loaded question. I could just say I agree and we could move on. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I do agree with 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 everything that you um with with everything that you said, and I even agree right. with it kind of as the old buddy who looks at mm -hmm. some of those things and appreciates uh, some of the things that have been lost, but some of the things that have been gained. You know, I I right. was uh, so age wise, I am somebody who did the hundred and twenty hour a week right. residency. You know, I remember my first. Is an intern on neurosurgery. I came in on a Monday and went home on a Friday, and I did burp mm -hmm. with somebody telling me what to do over the phone. And um, right. you know, there's a lot, and I wouldn't want that of anybody else. At the same time, how do we pick up some of um, uh, some of the uh, the qualities that are learned? I don't want to have a world of fear in training, but how do you how do you um, continue to motivate and you know you're doing burr holes over the phone with nobody there you're going to read a very different amount than if you think somebody's going to take yes. your hand and show you through it so again i don't yes. think that's the ideal way to do it it's not the right mm -hmm. way to do it but right. how do we marry that moving forward in a, in a in an environment that is um is more appropriate um right. and is more um is better for education so uh, I think that's that's the struggle and the challenge of it all. I, I do think that um, we need to get to a point where we really are focused more on competency and overall competency. Uh, mm -hmm. And that includes all the areas we talked about, being both the, the medical knowledge, the technical issues, the patient care, but all the other right. pieces of it, which I think are now coming into play more and the, the communication and all of those other parts of it. Uh, do I think we're going to move away from a time structure? I think there are a lot of logistics um, that 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 may be challenging. I think they're certainly aspirational. There are definitely models out there that are really mm -hmm. truly competency based. Um, I don't know how well that's going to translate and how much. I know we have to think way outside the box to to, to implement them. But mm -hmm. in terms of the, the focus, I think the idea needs to be that we really uh, um, um, focus on competency, focusing on fostering environments that promote education and promote learning and uh, aren't um, 
where we don't lose the humanity of the resident, right. of the doctors. You know, we have a terrible yes. problem with burnout um, mm -hmm. and it's only getting worse. And folks of my generation have to remember that we didn't have this whole EMR to deal with. And I think that is a huge issue. Um, it's funny when you started talking, one of my pet peeve words ends up being the word service because I don't know what to do with that word. In fact, <laughs> we've tried to do a study on this and uh, hopefully right. my friends and I are going to actually get it going at some point. It's been my kind of uh, uh, project on my computer desktop that has failed. Mm -hmm. to, I failed to execute in the past few years. But where does the word patient care ever come into this conversation? And that's what I struggle yes. with. So right. um, m my concern is, as I'll say the really old funny thing is, uh, I struggled when we got rid of the general surgery internship. That said, mm -hmm. I had a general surgery internship that was brutal, but mm -hmm. I learned how to manage patients and I learned how to identify problems. Doing discharge right. summaries for transplant patients in the middle of the night is not an effective use of a general surgery internship, and therefore changes had to be made. But how right. do we make sure that as we start paring down the responsibilities and the focus of residents, that we don't miss some of those patient care um, opportunities, education that sometimes now are being relegated to APPs and PAs. And mm -hmm. you have to be able to do it yourself before right. you can supervise somebody else doing it. And so maybe mm -hmm. there's a progression. Maybe it's not that residents will never dictate another discharge summary, but maybe it's after 20 or 30, it's really, we can have other people um, right. be more involved and take over some of that work. So I think there definitely mm -hmm. is a role for maximizing the use of uh, APPs, PAs, AMPs, whatever, whatever institutions call them. You know, I learned this, uh, we had the craziest little rotation during my residency. I think it was Tuesday mornings, while you were on the hand service, you went over to the Spalding Rehab Center for three hours. And you rounded on every patient that had been admitted from an, on an orthopedic, uh, with an orthopedic injury with, with this very senior, lovely uh, surgeon. Mm -hmm. And we all thought it was crazy and a waste of time. But then you would get a discharge summary saying, I'll never forget this one, neither the patient nor the chart were at the floor when I did this. And I think the patient had a total knee. The patient had had a total hip. Right. So now we're trying wow. to write these admission orders for this patient, actually prescribing a physical therapy program on the rehab inpatient side of things with the wrong operation on basically the wrong patient. And they had no guidance. And all of a sudden, just with that one little example, I realized the importance of this other stuff that we all totally poo pooed. So it's mm -hmm. finding the balance of how to give that education, but not make that so that that's 20 hours of a residence week. Um, right. And so make sure that we don't lose some of that little bit, but understand that typing things into a computer eight different times in 20 different ways is not what you need to be a good surgeon. So I, I think that we still have further to go with some of that. And I think that will open up more opportunities um, to have people in the, in the OR and to have uh, people in the, the, the clinic and the offices um, with the idea of, 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 spending more time getting competent in those areas. And the mm -hmm. older I get, I know a lot of the focus is always on the technical skill component, but gosh, every year older I get, I realize how much more surgery is in your brain and the cognitive part of it. And so making sure that we really work with residents on that part, how do you get residents excited about going to the office and figuring out about indications when everybody just wants to be in the operating room? And how do mm -hmm. we kind of, of marry the, um, the interest and the excitement with what's going to best prepare people for the future. So I think we have work to do to help more integrate those areas and not um, uh, to, to move away from some of those service type of elements that you talk about, but with just the caveat of not forgetting um, mm -hmm. that there are foundational educational pieces that you need to just get checked off on. You don't need to do it to a, a, a repetitive uh, uh, amount of time. I do wish uh, and hope that maybe in terms of the technical piece that we could integrate some things into medical school earlier um, in the sense of most residents and fellows that I have uh, come into contact with uh, are at least adequate in terms of technical skills and can get through it. Um, mm -hmm. Some people are just innately gifted and some people are just good and fine. There's nothing about going to medical school or picking orthopedics that means that you can use your hands in any meaningful way. Right. And 
there would be something, I would just love to see even a small curriculum in the first or second year with some basic manual dexterity, three-dimensional, not tying type of exercises mm-hmm. with even the hope that people will self-identify that for them it's a struggle and that's not going to be a fun part because a lot of programs, people are getting into the OR a little later, which I definitely have mixed feelings about. I think, as I said, I think the cognitive piece has to come first. So I'm mm-hmm. okay with it as long as people are really good by the end. Um, mm-hmm. But all of a sudden you're a third year and you're, you're, you're struggling to, to close a wound or, you know, struggling to cut suture or struggling with this, that, and the other. And it's just the wrong time to identify that. So right. I think that, um, well, I know it's not the residency issue. If we could even move some of that into the uh, undergraduate medical time and training, that would be a, a, a helpful thing for people in choosing their pathways and uh, even forget the us choosing residents, but in people choosing what, what they want to go into. Yeah, no, that's so true. That's just a, such a fantastic answer. And I really appreciate you, you know, sharing that with us. And um, I would like to transition to, you know, as this is a podcast about female orthopedic surgeons, I would like to touch on some of the things that you have experienced in your own career. And what do you think have been, or you think are the biggest misconceptions about being a woman in orthopedics or being a woman in orthopedic traumatology? Uh, I think it's that you just, that you can't do it, that you're not strong enough, you can't work hard mm-hmm. enough, that you won't fit, um, and that it's just not the right thing for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Lifestyle is always thrown in there. I think you can make it work however you choose to make it work, and you can find environments to make it work. Gosh, I remember years ago at the OTA, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying it, but I won't use names. Somebody made a comment uh, from the podium, and their intent was so great. We need more women in orthopedics if 50% of the class is female, and um, uh, we want the best and the brightest. We have to embrace it. And then it was like, yes. And I was actually sitting next to one of my female colleagues, and we're like, this is so great. This guy really means it. And he did mean it. But then he said, and thank goodness we just put in the 80-hour work week because then they'll be able to handle it. And Oh, no. And, you know, it was like you were doing so well until that because I will say that most of us have just felt like we're just going to be quiet and show up and just show up. And I think it was Christy Weber and her, was it her vice presidential address where she said, just be so good they can't ignore you. And that right. kind of resonates with me a, a, a lot. It's it's similar to mm-hmm. a quote I heard as a some podium, some um, uh roundtable discussion when I was a medical student about 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 going into surgery was sort of pick your battles. For me, it was always like, just get to the other side, and then you can slowly and quietly help affect change. But, you know, Christy's statement of just be so good, you can't ignore you, I thought was just so powerful that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not saying don't try and rock the boat and don't make changes. Right. I am very pro all the changes. We need to keep moving. We need to keep pushing the bar. It's very important. We've come pretty, we've we've made some strides and we need to keep making them, but we need to make them in a way that that works and just helps the next, the next generation too. Yes. No, it's, it's such a difficult, I've heard that before of pick your battles. I think uh, something that some surgeon had once talked to me about is, you know, when you're thinking about residency, because, you know, residency fellowship, it's a difficult time. You're, you're not in control of your own time. You're, pretty much sleep deprived. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that something that someone once told me was that when you look at residency and fellowship, you should just kind of think of it as be accepting of the fact that you're going to be there and just be accepting of the fact that, you know, you're going to be there for X many hours. You're going to possibly have some patients call you a nurse or, you know, you're going to have some comments where like I was doing a hip reduction and one of the ED attendings was like, would you like me to help you? Um, and just kind of be accepting that those things are just going to happen. And, you know, as you say, just kind of put your head down and just do the work, get that reduction, you know, aim for those radiology reads that says, you know, perfect anatomic alignment after a reduction and such, but it's, it's so, it's such a line to cross and I, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's different and it's challenging and it's, I don't know, I guess. Yeah. Let me comment on the pick your battles. I say it not for them. I say it for yourself. 
I mm. say it for the self-protection. I say right. it to calm myself down so that every day when somebody tries to poke at me or whatever, and I'm not some victim right now, don't get me wrong, but like all the different things, just like you said, when, you know, I remember when we patients still had to pay for TV and mm -hmm. uh, the patient was more, thought I was the TV lady and was more excited to see me as the TV lady than the doctor. I, it's, yeah. I'm going to exhaust myself if I, if mm -hmm. I get into it with every patient. So it's pick your battles to what's meaningful to you. And, mm -hmm. and, and don't waste energy when it's going to be wasted and you're going to get frustrated and it's not going to take you to the next level. Th that's all. So right. for me, it was a self-preservation of mm -hmm. keeping myself through it and then being able to pick the big ones that really were meaningful and then mm -hmm. try and focus my efforts there. So I don't know if right. that's a, a little bit of a different way to say it, because I don't want to say, yeah. put your head down and like, let it all be and just let them, you know, do whatever they want. <laughs> because I can, we yeah. can go on for hours about stories that we've all had about, right. um, you know, about, about, about gender issues. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could even, I, I maybe I'm going off topic and only just about, Three minutes before I, I uh, called into this, did I think about something that has been on my mind in terms of the gender issue for a long time? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's appropriate. I can I can read you something. I would that was, love to hear it. I can read you something that came out when I was a resident. And um, mm -hmm. so the Academy of Orthopedic Surgery had a, uh, it was called the Bulletin. And it, I, I don't remember, it came out maybe quarterly and it was an in-print sort of a little bit like a magazine type of a thing. And the first mm -hmm. like two or three pages were in the news. And I remember I was a resident when I when I read this. It's just three sentences. And it was the second bullet point in the news. Residency training chairs support diversity goals. I'll read you the date later. In May, the diversity committee asked 153 residency training program chairs if they, in quote, supported the goals of the diversity committee, quote, and quote, if they were interested in welcoming qualified women and minorities into their residency program. Quote, let me repeat that. If they were interested in welcoming qualified women and minorities into their residency program, the committee found that 101 residency training program chairs responded positively, which is more than a 34% increase from 1999 when 75% uh, chairs responded positively. So that was in the year 2000. And I remember I went up to Dr. Mankin, my chairman, who um, mm -hmm. was the first person to believe in me and support me. And he's the reason I'm here today doing what right. I do. And I said, I don't understand this. And I said, this doesn't even ask people if they want to like go recruit them. It just, would you be okay if they showed up, if they were qualified? And right. so in 2000, um, 101 directors said of 153 that they would be willing to accept. So again, I don't have the whole context of the article. This is just what the Academy chose to print in a positive mm -hmm. manner that we have made huge strides and changes that when you take the contract or the, the opposite of it, that a third of programs actively discriminate. Um, right. And I, and I, and, and that sort of was my mindset moving forward. And that was 20 years ago. Um, and compared to that, I think we've actually come a, a long way. I think we have right. more to go, but I think that tells us where we were in orthopedics in the 1990s and before. And that's not every individual. I have come across some of the most welcoming uh, and supportive uh, people in my career. And basically, mm -hmm. yeah, predominantly male. Um, who have completely looked past gender, uh, can look past just about all of those things and will um, treat you and respond to you by what you produce. Uh, mm -hmm. But if we go to back to talking about the gender issue, talking about to ideal residency programs, it, it, it's, it's when these kind of statements just go away and, and don't even need to be discussed right. or, or, or written about or published. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, what's actually interesting is, you know, how do we find those residency programs? Like we are in a situation right now where the fourth year medical students currently, they can't do sub-eyes because of COVID. They're, all these interviews are going to be 
you know, over the internet and they're going to be remote. And so how do medical students figure out which are those programs that would be welcoming to them? Yeah, I think it's a tough question. I think that um, I, uh, for good or bad, I think history and track record definitely said something, but it, mm -hmm. I can't say that every female attending female surgeon I've come across in my career has been the most supporting and almost can be the opposite. So you just never know with that. Never know. But programs that do have women, and for good or for bad, they seem to attract more. Mm -hmm. That said, I think every program is going to have individuals that have conscious or unconscious biases against them, some for mm -hmm. them. And I would really hope that all programs in this day and age would be truly welcoming and interested in having women and underrepresented individuals in their programs. And I actually believe that to be true. That said, there may be individual faculty attending staff who are not. Uh, there may be our nurses who are not. There may be everybody who is not. And sure, is it a little bit harder to be the first one or to be the only one? Probably. Um, that said, like, I think a lot of us have had trouble or, you know, when there are two of one type of a person, two women or two something, and one is an underperformer, all of a sudden you all get grouped together. So, um, right. you know, there's lots of issues and barriers, but I, I really think that things are changing. And I think that, um, a lot of this in terms of resident applicants, just see where you get a feel, talk to the residents. I, I think and I hope um, that uh, programs will make a lot of effort to get the residents engaged with the applicants. I mean, that's always been the argument over the years about, you brought up earlier the expense of going on interviews and traveling and all this mm -hmm. stuff. Why we programs haven't gotten away from that and done this all virtually before, is there something, at least I personally feel it's almost intangible that you get when you're talking to somebody and when you're interacting and you you can watch the 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 nonverbal communication between the residents when you ask a question. Um, right. And so hopefully there will be a lot of outreach. But the time is here where all programs need to embrace diversity and diversity in terms of gender. And I mm -hmm. really do think, at least in speaking, most do now. You never know what it's like till you get there and you never know where it's going to be okay or not okay. So we need to just go flood all the programs, the ones that mm -hmm. want us and the ones that we think may or may not want us and make right. sure that we're there because that's the only way that it's going to grow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Dr. Tatesman, I really appreciate your time talking about your thoughts of your past as well as kind of the state of where orthopedic surgery is today. But I would love to talk to you about the future and what your current goals and projects are for you both clinically as well as research and just your work in other organizations? Sure. Um, I guess to me, I'll break it down to the different parts of, of, of what I do. And first and foremost, is going to be patient care. I, I just want to keep getting better. I want to keep getting better as a, as, mm -hmm. as a doctor in my thought processes as a surgeon and communicating with people as we get busier, making time for patients and just just continuing to improve and, and keep that as the focus of my career. Um, I am at a big teaching center and I think I can always be a better teacher. I know as I get older, sometimes my patience waxes and wanes and I just need to make sure I step back and keep trying to figure out better techniques to improve my teaching. I think we have all these challenges with COVID that I can't even get into about how to do it mm -hmm. uh, virtually and really rocking the boat. Right. But I think, um, you know, how to, how to keep allowing uh, uh, residents and fellows to, to learn how to think and how to evolve and to improve their technical skills. In terms of mm -hmm. research for me, that's something given a lot of my uh, outside of the hospital and committee type of work. I've gotten a lot more involved and that probably dropped a little bit for me, but I'm trying to re-engage. And as I talked about before, I think my interest is with, uh, with research uh, in the public health realm. I think there's lots of avenues that we can um, work on and, and use our knowledge mm -hmm. to uh, better uh, better understand and, and even come up with some more kind of public service type of approaches to, 
to implementing right. the findings of our research. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the last thing, uh, which you did talk about and highlight before, is my ABOS involvement. For me, it's um, uh, really, um, it's just an honor. I, I'm completely humbled by this opportunity and I really want to make the most of it. So focusing a lot of my time and effort in that, in the, in the, the, the parts of that, the GME aspect, I think for me will be uh, a lot of what I'm gonna be doing over the next, uh, the next 10 years. Awesome, very cool. Well, we are reaching toward the end of our interview. And so I would like to move into the final five, which is my segment in which I ask the same five questions to every guest on the Sheet Can Fix a Podcast. So my first final five question for you, Dr. Tasteman, is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Uh, oh, it's so hard <laughs> to say. Um, gosh, you know, one thing that I really like doing uh, uh, are humoral non-unions. Um, I have a bunch of patients who come to us sometimes two, three years out from an arm that isn't working because their humerus hasn't healed and somebody's given up or never tried or whatever the problem is. And and then you, you fix them and all of a sudden, like at six weeks, at three months, they're just, they can use their arm again and they're just so happy. And, mm. and also on the technical side of it, uh, one, it's forgiving and that the arm can be a little bit short, which helps it heal. And like a femur where right. you got to keep it up to length. And um, the anatomy is just great. It's just so much fun if you can, especially as a posterior approach, you can just lay out the radial nerve and the residents and fellows just love it. And it's just a beautiful anatomy exposure, even when right. there's horrible scar tissue in that 30 minutes to an hour when I'm cussing because I can't find the radial nerve and some big thing, a scar in the back. But ultimately, it's just it's, it's a great operation. And I think people often do well if you mm -hmm. can get it to work. Nice, nice. What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? Um, well, there's the usual fracture topics, but that, you know, everybody does that. Uh, I, I really like talking about open fractures. It's something that I, um, I had a big interest in uh, right when I got to my fellowship. And uh, kind of a talk that I keep modifying that I put together tries to look at each decision we make along the way from the minute the patient hits the uh, door to the emergency room to, to what we do. Um, so I really look back and try to find all the primary source documents for why we do what we do. Like so much of it is probably dogma and passed on. Like you look at the wound and you put a dressing on it, right? We didn't have all these phones to take pictures. So that was like, okay, now what do we all do? But, you know, you go back to something like that little piece of information and there's just this little, uh, I think it's about 130 page little book that uh, was written um, where uh, they looked at their own patients and looked at about 180 patients and a lot more of them that got looked at multiple times had infections and there we go, that's the teaching. And I can't find any other documented source of data for that. So uh, I love talking about open fractures and thinking about every decision we make or even the lack of decisions, which are decisions unto themselves and why we do what we do, which kind of segues me to another topic that I've really uh, liked talking about, especially in the last few years is kind of critical thinking and decision-making how we make the decisions we make and how do we marry that uh, balance of literature, evidence-based medicine, the art, the science, the experience, and even dogma, you know, it's a word that maybe is good and maybe is bad. And so I think thinking about critical decision-making is a really interesting kind of educational topic. Hmm. Very cool. I haven't, I haven't even heard of that. So that's, that's awesome. What is your favorite story or memory as an orthopedic surgeon? This Gosh. is usually the toughest one. I know, this, I know. <laughs> this is a tough one. Uh, um, I know. Hard-hitting questions. There are so many, and there are so many that, are just, uh, that I would sit here and laugh or, or, or cry, and nobody else would get it. You know, thinking about what we've talked about um, and the whole education piece, I, there's a story that I, I do uh, 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 like from when I was a fellow, and I was a fellow here at Harborview, and there's a, a wonderful mentor slash character slash huge personality called Dr. Chip Rout. Um, and uh, he was here, and I was a fellow, and it was my first rotation, and I was nailing a femur, a transverse femur fracture, and he was just standing in the corner of the room, and people who know him know he just sort of puts his one hand on his hip and just shaking his head, because I can't get the femur in the same zip code. I don't think I get in the same state, you know what I mean? And I'm, 
I'm just kind of trying to reduce the fraction, reduce it. The, the resident has, you know, it's got the starting point and I just can't get this thing reduced. And he is just shaking his head in the corner and uh, uh, he scrubs in. He gives me a five minutes. He scrubs in. He just stare. And we have a good probably foot and a half height, a foot at least, a foot height difference. And he's just looking at me and he scrubs in and then he does the exact same thing. And he can't get it in the same state. And he just right. looks at me and he goes, Lisa, you probably have pretty mixed emotions right about now. <laughs> On one hand, you want this case to end. On the other hand, you're just kind of happy daddy can't get it either. And <laughs> while it was just a great experience, if you think back and you think about education, or you think about the roles people are in, there's just so much to that, um, that it just, it always resonates with me today. Plus the, the humor and uh, in it at the time was just, uh, was just so real. That's perfect. Oh my word. So I know that we've talked a lot about medicine and a lot about the operating room, but what are your favorite activities to do out when you're outside the hospital? Well, being in the Pacific Northwest, there's water and the water is perfect. So I, uh, mm -hmm. I like anything water related. In fact, it is going to be 80 degrees this afternoon and uh, mm -hmm. I will be, I have a little uh, motorboat and I will be out on the water. Uh, nice. With, um, with not too many people staying away from everybody being COVIDly responsible, yes. uh, but getting out in the water and, and, and swimming. So I love to swim. It's killing me that the, the pools are closed and, um, mm. uh, but kind of the outdoor water swimming, boating is really my happy place. Oh, that's awesome. And my final question for you, Dr. Tatesman, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, I think it's always important to remember that we are just so privileged to be able to do what we do, that mm -hmm. we have an opportunity to help people in such a meaningful way. So always strive for excellence. Remember there's a person and a patient and that's really why we're all here and doing it. And we should mm -hmm. just embrace it and enjoy it and just keep striving for excellence. Oh, that's perfect. Dr. Tiesman, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I've had an absolute blast and I sincerely wish you the best of luck moving forward. Same to you. I think you have a very, very bright future ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Lisa Tatesman. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Venny kirk without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.